I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ernest Ifkowitz of Portovino Selection Solicitor, how are you? I'm good, Levy. Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. So you're a Pennsylvania man. I am. I am the Keystone State. And uh, what was it like growing up there? You know, I grew up in a, a blue-collar neighborhood, right? I mean, um, dropping transmissions, uh, um, fixing motorcycles. That, that that was me, man. What was the family like? <sighs> man. Um, one of those. Yeah, I got one of no. those too. <laughs> I also have the big side favorite. No, in a good way, in a good way too, right? Uh, you know, my dad's a biker, um, so he's got like biker tattoos up and down the arm. Um, my mom was a nurse. Um, that was that was kind of gives you some some direction for the family. My sister was there, but uh, I, you know, I kind of was. Uh, Gravitated towards my mom with the nursing side and, and taking care of people and taking care of things and kind of wanted to be a tough guy like my dad too, right? I don't have any tattoos though, you know what I mean? What was the relationship with beverages? Uh, you know, my dad was, um, he was a beer guy. So um, <laughs> when, uh, you know, when I was a kid, he'd often ask me to go fetch him a beer. So I'd always uh, go to the fridge and, you know, the first one I gave him, you know, I, I know how to serve a beer and I'd open it and he'd say thank you. You know, when you get to the second and third one, I, I was like, you know, I'd shake them up a little bit, right? Just because it was fun <laughs> and it explode. So that was uh, that was that. So one day, um, you know, he's like, don't shake the beer up. You know, he caught me in my game. I said, listen, listen, uh, I want to start collecting things. He's like, why? And I'm like, I just do. I just do. And uh, he's like, here, collect this. And it was an empty. It was an empty beer can. Uh, maybe it was Yingling or something like that. I'm not sure. So that was... Uh, you know, I had a, a little little beer collection there going. Of bottles and, and cans. Bottles and cans, yeah, in my room. I mean, I wasn't drinking, you know. I was, I was like eight years old or something like that. But it was about the idea of collecting. I think so. I mean, maybe collecting would be a little bit too intellectual. I think it was the idea about those bottles were really, some of them were really different, right? Some were from Pennsylvania, but some were imports and some were, you know, they were from, you know, my dad wasn't drinking, you know, Cantillon, right? But he had some other stuff there. And so I was like, ah. This is kind of weird. Where's this at? Even if it was from another state, you know? Because I remember as a kid, we grew up in the sticks, like in the real sticks. Oh, really? It was like a logging town. Kind of similar to what you're talking sure, about. Sure, like sure, sure. Guys who drank beer and, sure. you know, had tats and stuff. And um, I remember having a coin collection just being really into the idea that these were minted in a different place. Like there was different places that they came yeah. from. There was different dates that they came from. Yeah. And, you know, that was my brush with the exotic like that i'm serious like that and like occasional comic books that i couldn't afford at a place that was actually called the general store no way yeah yeah there was such a place yeah good for you man at least you could cash them in but there was a real sense that like you know i was in a way kind of hunting something outside the small town of 400 people dude i remember um i was looking at my collection one day at the wall and you know i i was starting to get a pretty good collection um, and right next to the collection, it was my closet. And so I had this really good idea that I should empty out my closet and that could be my office, right? For the, like the beer can collection. So uh, I did that and, 
you know, I started putting some books in there, you know, a little light candle. That probably wasn't a good idea. But dad's like, what's going on, man? And that was like, you know, <laughs> I was still trying to be a grease monkey, but my dad's like, he's doing things in the closet, you know? <laughs> did you have hangout time with dad? I mean, did you, was it a close relationship or? No, I think um, it was a close relationship, but my dad, my dad's still alive. Um, but he was really my hero. I mean, he was a real tough guy and no, I, I like to think I'm a tough guy, but I, I don't think I am, you know, you know, right. Um, he, I mean, he was a real tough guy, you know, right. I mean, like guns, knives, tattoos, kind of tough guy. So, um, well, I remember you told me the story, like somebody was talking at him and he got out of a car and he said like, there's a kid in the car. And oh yeah. 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 He, like shut him down. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. We were like going for milk. Right. And, uh, he's like, get in the car. We're going to go for milk. You know, you get a gallon of milk, which. Well, you're forgetting my favorite quote, What's which that? is like, let's get the fuck out of here. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, all right, let's get the fuck out of here. Let's go for some quart of milk. <laughs> yeah, he's a character, man. He's a character. And he was a guy that never had um, any fear, you know? Um, never had any fear. And I, that was always at, at once mythical to me as a kid. But also really put me in a position where I, it's hard to be that person. And of course, as you grow up later in life, you realize that you know, he has fears like the rest of us. But it gave me this idea of like, you know, I've always been interested in mythical people, you know, Odysseus or Beowulf, stuff like that. And, and I think that maybe that, yeah, thinking about it now, maybe that did transfer to me too, you know, a little bit, my own little tough guy way, right? Kind of going, uh, going down my own trail. That's funny because I identify with a lot of that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Like, as a kid, I would take uh, classes that were clearly not my wheelhouse, like uh, how to fix cars and stuff. And I would do terribly at them. (laughs) Like, really bad. It was, like, the only D I ever got. Like, I was a straight-A student just by just definite. Like, I just didn't have to do anything to get A's. It just came naturally. And uh, I would take these classes that were like tough guy classes. You know, I would see these guys like working on their car and stuff. And I would like want to be like one of the tough guys. Yeah, they had like big belts and stuff, you know. (laughs) You know, like I wanted this idea of manhood kind of thing. And I would like take these classes and like try to hang with those dudes. And both of those things failed miserably. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I I hear you. I hear you. Same boat, man. And that same thing with kind of oversized male heroes, like in terms of uh, I got really into Greek myths, like in a big way, and I yeah. got into comic books. And like, you thing. know, that epic, that epic journey, right? And that epic hero. And they're, you know, they're, those guys are always traveling, you know, <laughs> they kind of have to go to a foreign land and come back or something like that, you know, but, you know, my dad, even to this day, I'm like, I'm going to New York, you know, he lives in Pennsylvania, he's like, whoa, <laughs> I ain't going there. <laughs> I'm like, well, Dad, it's, it's New York. He's like, no way. I'm a smart man. <laughs> you got you. out of the small town, and what happened? I mean, what what kind of segued? I mean, now you're this big uh, globe charting uh, Italian wine importer. So, like, oh yeah, what's man. the it's vague? A <laughs> <laughs> but what's the arc of that? I mean, you know, I think the arc of that was. Really just being curious from that um, beginning beer collection or you had that coin collection is just kind of, I don't know, I felt something inside. I I just wanted that sense of adventure of kind of going down a different path or or just any path, you know, not to be different to be different because that can be lonely too. And so I started reading a lot. I, you know, I didn't know about college. I went to a high school that kind of, you know, there was a the blue collar section and then across the train tracks there were you know the kids that you know <laughs> they knew who beowulf was at that time and i i was just kind of figuring it out myself um and so i started reading lots of books and at the same time you know the high school ended and i had to do something right and my dad's like well don't overthink it get a job <laughs> and so uh, i i you know i thought about it a lot um and i started waiting tables like many of us right that you know lots of Young people I see today, they're really into wine because they wait tables. And of course, they're much better than, than I am and I ever was. But you start, you know, waiters tend to drink some wine at the end of the shift. Yeah, I mean, I did. So for me, culture was something I felt denied of and that I felt like I had to fight to get. So for me to read like a book that had something to do with Beowulf or Odysseus, that felt for me like almost uh, not a rebellious act, but like at the limit of it. 
like uh for me it was rebellious yeah for me it was rebellious but i felt stupid too right i mean i was i was so rebellious i didn't want to read the introductions but you know i'm like reading the first paragraph 10 times i'm like okay (laughs) 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 Uh, i'm all about the trail but i'm still lost and i'm at the beginning (laughs) this isn't good um but it did teach me to be okay with being lost and lost for a long time and even to be bumbling and insecure i think that's helped me i think that's helped me later not always sometimes it's better to be secure but i um that idea of not reading introductions that idea of uh you know (laughs) i went I started trying to learn Latin a little bit and, you know, I was, I didn't know what an adverb was, dude. I was using like Mad Lib books, right? (laughs) So, um, that was an important time for me and it really created a habit for me to try your best. You know, when you're lost, you don't have to be found. You don't have to capture something. You you don't have to know it all right away. You know, you don't have to have that tasty note. I still feel that today. Some of the wines that I really like in the portfolio, you know, some wines you just taste, you're like, yeah. That's it. You know, let's figure out how to make it work. And some, you're like, I'm not sure. And I still feel that way. And I think that that's, um, those are some of the wines that actually tend to be wines that I really like in the long term, you know? Early in, the things that kind of kept me in, like, restaurants and wine were, like, some of the friend groups that were involved. Like, just the, there was a camaraderie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, when I was waiting tables, it was, there wasn't a wine scene but there was that there was that camaraderie of uh, you know at the end of the shift going out for a couple of drinks together. I miss that. I mean, I'm you know, I'm a I have a family now, and it's it's different as as it should be. But I I do miss those days of saddling up to the bar and uh, talking about the shift. And we didn't talk so much about wines, but a little bit you did, right? And that was a nice balance. I I not to to be overly romantic, but I enjoy that rhythm. We're probably about the same age, so I imagine that uh, some of the wines that were kind of like really expensive now, back then, you know, a little more affordable. Maybe somebody could afford them, have it with dinner kind of thing. Oh, for sure. I worked in uh, downtown Princeton at a restaurant called uh, Meditera, and it opened up, and you know, there was lots of, lots of uh, Italian, lots of French, um, even some Spanish stuff. And so it was, uh, it was easy to explore. And that is really important to me. I mean, when I go looking for wines at Portfolio, I, just for me at least, I would never want, you know, you know a, a big roller luxury portfolio because I couldn't offer that to people like me that were getting started out. You know what I mean? I'm all about like putting some money down for a wine and also having them in the portfolio. And I think that's an important direction. But I, I also like, you know, offer that kid in Nebraska who's waiting tables, you know, a wine for 14 bucks or 12 bucks, you know. It's interesting that you say that because I know talking to you that you're really interested in the what I think of as kind of like the other alternative markets outside of San Francisco and New York. Like I know that you really like to go to some of the, you know, smaller towns of the United States and meet some kid that's just kind of needs direction and kind of work with that person almost more than you enjoy like getting that placement at the high profile place in Manhattan. It seems to me. For sure. Um, on an emotional level, for sure. I mean, one, you know, one <laughs> operates at many different levels, but on an emotional level, for sure. You know, I was recently in Houston and there was um, a sommelier who, you know, was, was fighting the fight, you know. <laughs> he was uh, putting out the wines that he really liked, buying from uh, cool, small distributors. And he just was, he just was filled with so much optimism and and so many questions for me and 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 we talked about this a lot because Houston is a it can be a luxury market and he like I really find ourselves in both of these worlds you know you kind of get a little bit got to put one foot in bed with the devil right and we're okay with that with the luxury market and we enjoy some of those wines but there is the thing of we want to keep it exploring especially in Italy you know Italy I think difference in France, it's about the exploring, right? Italy's the great country of weekend trips. (laughs) Um, You can hop on a train or a plane and get somewhere real quickly. And I think that that's that's charming and romantic, and I want to keep that. You know, it's not a normal transition, the one that you made from not originally going to college to learning Latin and then teaching that to teachers. That seems like something must have happened there. I've always had relationships uh, with people where they were the teacher and I was the student or, or 
I was the teacher and they were the student. And the best of those relationships, it kind of went back and forth a little bit. Who was who? Was who. And I think those are the relationships I learned the most from. So for me, it in some ways felt a lot more natural than um, maybe for somebody else. That's interesting, coming back to your family stuff. What's like different views of your dad. Feels like at different moments, even maybe in the same day, your thought about him kind of moved. Yeah, it has. And it has over the years, as we all do with our parents. Um, but my context has changed. And so it's allowed me to be a lot gentler to myself and, um, and for him to be a lot gentler to himself and, 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 and me. And that's been, uh, that's been great. And it's been something that has happened because I've, you know, cause I do live in Italy and I, I do something totally different than what my dad did growing up. And so what was the first trip to Italy? You know, back then, geez, the first trip was a long time ago. Uh, the first trip was I, I got a job teaching Latin. So I came out of college. I got a job at a high school teaching Latin. So uh, they signed me up. You know, I had some money, right? I had some money saved up so I could go for the summer. Got to Italy and I wanted, you know, I, you know it's kind of like throwing a dart at a, at a map. Where do you go, right? So I went to Florence, um, the, the same place that I have to kind of elbow the tourists out of the way to get my Lampardotto sandwich in the morning. And I wanted to see... Uh, Botticelli's, don't laugh, but I wanted to see Botticelli's uh, La Nascita di Venere, The Birth of Venus. I, I read about that and I thought it'd be cool to see it. And, and, but I like that. I like that mix, you know, of, um, of being a little bit bumbling, um, being a little bit naive too, and also be thoroughly searching and trying to understand something on a deep level. So what was that first trip like? I mean, now that you look back at it. I spent a lot of time alone, you know, in the city, just walking around. And I, I loved it. I loved um, looking up at those medieval rafters and walking along the shade of buildings. That was cool for me. I mean, this was all new for me. And these were real new emotions. You know, I was doing a little bit of translation work for some poetry work. My own work, my own edification. I was into a couple poets. They were in Italian, you know, and I wanted to do that. I was doing a little bit of Latin. And I was just taking lots of, lots of long walks, you know. It was a long time ago, but it was a good time. You know, uh, I was melancholy, and, and I like melancholy, but you can get lonely too, right? So I was like, um, okay, <laughs> we're the girls and beaches, right? <laughs> so um, I, went to, uh, I went to Elba. You know, you take the train, then you, then you take the ferry, and that, it, it was so cool, right? It was so cool. And I got to Elba. I didn't know where I was going. I had almost no money. I met some people. I'm like, listen, I was looking at any places around here. And again, I was speaking English. I didn't know what time at the time. And they're like, oh, well, we'll take you. Where are you going? I'm like, ah, your direction. <laughs> 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 and uh, to remember the smell of like rosemary and dried fennel, like classic Elba um, smells. And, uh, you know, we're driving and uh, I think there was like Pinback, I, I, some music Pinback, there was some kind of American music called Pinback. There might have been a box cello um, violin, the Paolo Casales thing. So there's like these two things going on, like this American punk, which I don't, I don't know punk really, and this great classical music. And again, it, this, this dichotomy that I had and I still have in my life between maybe blue collar, rough and ready and um, something more intellectual and, and deeply searching. Anyway, so they're like, you know, it's hot. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's hot. I'm like, you know, <laughs> is there, <laughs> I, thank God I didn't say, is there, a, is there a pool around here, right? They're like, yeah, there's, you know, you jump in the Mediterranean. So I remember uh, floating in the Mediterranean with them. Like, well, let's just go, you know, jump right in, right in the um, beach. I love how Italians are like that. I love it. I mean, of course, if your life is just being frivolous, you know, no go. We all need that. And so um, I was in the water and we're all just hanging out. And I said, these people, this is amazing. They don't even know me. Um, I, you know, I, I think I said the classic American thing. I could be a serial killer. And, you know, thankfully they didn't understand. And I was floating in the Mediterranean. Um, ah, I just felt I was on top of the world, man. When did food become important to you? My parents would cook a lot. So... 
you know, there was always the crock pot, right? So, I mean, I remember that my dad would always make a pork and sauerkraut crock pot. So, as a kid, food was, was a bit a part of my life. Um, and then, of course, when you get into restaurants, food takes on um, the centerpiece because that's what you're offering to people, right? And so, sometimes uh, people don't like what you're offering and you can eat it in the back. And, <laughs> and so, that was a way to discover food, too. But it wasn't, it wasn't that really food became such a deep part of me until I went to Italy. Still to this day, a normal Italian just has a sensibility about food that at least I didn't have, you know, growing up. Um, you know, I guess everyone, uh, people are different nowadays, but, but then I, I didn't have that kind of sensibility. I remember when I was in Florence that those first couple of months before I went to Elba, I had to, you know, I had to eat and I couldn't go out to eat every meal. So I went to the market and, you know, you're kind of trying out some words, please, all that. I got some olive oil and ricotta and uh, pasta. I just remember sitting in my room reading poetry and that, that olive oil, that, that ricotta, the cream, the yogurt, you know, it was another register for me. And so that, that opened the floodgates. And I mean, it, it's, it's always been like that. And now with my family, and having a son and seeing him growing up with this kind of food, it's, uh, it's reinforced that. That must be interesting, you know, given your childhood to, to be a father and raise a child in a whole other country, given what you've already said. Yeah, I wasn't planning on having a kid. Um, and that said, uh, my son is a, is a really, really important part of my life. You know, all around me is a, is a country called Italy, and they, they speak Italian. But my son and I, we speak English, so we, we have this kind of bubble around us because we only speak English. Um, I mean, it's good for talking bad about people too, right? I mean, <laughs> um, it's made me think about, about America a lot in my childhood, which I think all fathers do, right? And then you want to give your kid what you had, right? So, you know, if you... Uh, through the baseball with dad and that was kind of cool before the turkey dinner you want to give that to your kid and you know i couldn't find a baseball glove and bat there and you know certainly no one else was doing it and so the experiences that i had as a kid that i thought that i should give to my son weren't on offer um but other ones were so you know cooking spaghetti my son knows how to make spaghetti al pomodoro Probably better than me in his head. Before I left, we said, we, we, I took the day off, and I'm like, dude, let's cook up some spaghetti pomodoro. It's the typical guy thing you do, right? It's like, uh, mom's not home, like, you know, and you, you get a lot. You get like double, right? You just make a big plate of it. You just be a pig. It's great. And I'm like, well, what do you want to put in? And he's like, well, pomodoro. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, what else? I'm like, we got some anchovies, some caper, some olives, some tuna. He's like, no, 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 you're too complicated. Just salt tomatoes, pomodoro, and at the end, a little bit of olive oil on top. And may maybe we'll have cheese. I was like, dude, you're Italian. Yeah, this <laughs> it's over. Exactly. I was like, in Italian, you say Americanata, when you make like a, you know, you add like 50 ingredients, you know, it's kind of a bombastic creation. So. so you ended up making Florence your home. And what's your impression of it now? Because I find that, you know, when you go back to a place that you have that kind of really opening experience and then you go back and live there a lot can change for you as an expat you go through phases right so at first you're you, you love europe right you're a european and those americans should you know if they only could understand like what a speedo could do right <laughs> and then um you know you're not making any money after a couple of years and you're like these euro trash people right <laughs> um the cars are too small um and a lot of people flit back and forth between those you know love and hate uh, feelings living in an, in another culture and you know florence isn't in the middle of nowhere right i live in a small hill town about 20 minutes south of florence but i go to florence a lot and you know you see lots of tourists right i mean i know lots of places to go where the tourists are not but you can't get out of the way of them sometimes right and i, I used to have the feeling you know they're they're kind of annoying you know i'm like don't don't say bruschetta to me you know five more times you know it's bruschetta um, don't say, oh, isn't it beautiful here? But those are the same things I did when I came years ago. And so I, it's only been the last couple of years, but I've had a real, 
a, a real softness for for uh, just normal normal bumbling tourists, you know. And um, they often think I'm Italian, which is is ironical. Um, I tell them, I know I'm, I'm from America, but I live here, and kind of happy to help them, and I'm even happy to listen to their their little piece of authenticity because um, you can't tell people what authenticity is for them, you know. It seems like that's the topic you've searched out without really saying it up front. But like if I'm trying to hang out with a lot of blue collar dudes and, yeah. I, and I'm trying to hang out with a lot of poets, yeah, usually I think at the root of that, I'm looking for something to be overly trite, authentic. The part that, about Ernest that I don't see is the part where you were like hanging out at the mall next to the Gap store. You right, know, right, like you, yeah. you never did the middle road. No, for you sure, I man. Mean? I mean, my wife calls me um, Baroni Barbone, which means um, Baroni is barren, right? And Barbone is like a clochard, like a homeless guy, right? So that's me. Like I can eat the prosciutto sandwich in the car, get drunk and fall asleep. I mean, get drunk with a good bottle of wine. Um, or I can do like the three-star Michelin thing, right? I'm good with both. Um, Authenticity is tricky. You know, it's a tricky subject. And so... Again, I don't think it's my role to tell people what is authentic. You know, it's kind of a version of a tastemaker. And I think we're all, I think lots of us are looking for authenticity in wines, right? I mean, in life too, but it comes up in the wines all the time. Oh, this is really authentic. Um, I'm not sure. It, it, it's a slippery word, isn't it? Um, it's a slippery word. Especially now it's been like commoditized. I sure. mean, now it's like actively marketed for, you know? Yeah. But I, I do think that, you know when something's authentic to you, you feel it. The trick is you can't tell people your feelings of authenticity and expect them to have the same one. Kind of like my son, right? I can't, you know, I can't, I can't throw um, a football with him and expect it's going to be the same feelings I had throwing a football with my dad. I mean, I don't think he really threw footballs. I mean, it was like we we're throwing knives, right? But, um, and so I can't tell a, a wine drinker you know, this is what a Sangiovese is like, you know, it's like the forest floor and, 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 and um, you know, it, it's rough, it's rough and ready, but it, it has a touch of class too, a, a great Chianti or, you know, something from Rado or Lamole or a Bruschetta that only has olive oil on it and salt. They, they have to figure that on their, their own, but they can be inspired by your, your authenticity. You know what I mean? Like it has, uh, this is too many big, words together but like the fecundity of your authenticity right like people get excited and and thirsty hopefully too right about what you think is authentic and then they find their own authenticity and that might be that same bottle of wine it might be a different bottle of wine or you know maybe they might change the tables and say like here your authenticity you know check this out man and that's happened to me too well i've definitely so, seen that develop you know, in the culture in new york at least oh yeah where people one up you on the authentic yeah i think once you set a an ideal in place someone is usually going to come in and be like, well, I got one that that's a little more tight. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's a contact sport sometimes, so a little bit like that, you know. But if that's what it's all about, and you're not really looking for, you know, Venice Beauty or, or like damn good delicious wines that are unique, and then I think we're all just, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit too much posturing for me. So when did you move to Florence? So 2008, I moved back with my, my wife, and we had a son, and that's when I started Portovino. So did you have some experience in the wine trade before you started your own business? I would like to say yes. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, I think I smoked that pipe, you know. I, I am a, I'm a romantic at heart, and I didn't have any kind of professional experience. But I would go and I'd taste a lot of wines and go to these wineries and, and talk with these producers. And that was really, that was a really good time for me, you know, just spending time talking with people. And my Italian was getting, you know, much better than, it wasn't great, but I was understanding, you know, like 89%. Um, but it, it set up a pattern to talk to people and, uh, and to be patient with people, and be patient for the story. And that, uh, that's good, man. That's like, you know, I'm not a patient guy, right? <laughs> so I think that that's really good. But at some point I realized I had to get some experience. Um, so I had a friend uh, in Siena. I lived in Siena as well. They uh, had a friend from Oakland, from the East Bay. And he had a little wine shop, um, European-centered. And I got a job there for about three years. Um, it was a great time. It, it let me taste other wines. 
It was good. And I, and I worked for a small importer. You know, I helped a small importer with uh, his business. So those two jobs, you know, I kind of, I packed it all together, right? I'm like, okay, I got three years. I still wanted to be an importer. I didn't even know it was called an importer. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to find wines and bring them over. I didn't know it was called importer. I didn't, I didn't understand the rock star element importer to it. And uh, so I, those three years, I had two jobs. I was uh, working at a, at a small um, wine shop and I was helping uh, a small Italian importer. Oh, wait. Kind of an interesting time to start a business. Oh, yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when you like stare at those uh, profit and losses, <laughs> um, yeah, the colors don't change, you know. <laughs> it was tough. But it made me figure out quickly what I really wanted to do. So, so what was that? I mean, what came to the fore right away for you? That it's serious. It's not a game. So you can be hopelessly romantic and you can be searching and you can have epic ideals of authenticity but you got to make the nuts and bolts of the business work um and you know we don't often talk about that but uh, i wasn't good at that you know what i mean levy i was you know i was like you know i wasn't i wasn't a business guy i didn't I, you know i didn't even like money i was like <laughs> the less the better people were like okay <laughs> um so money I, money wasn't in my world and that was really hard for me in the beginning. But I, I buckled down. I said, this is important to me. There's a, it's not about the money. It's about the responsibility. It's about I look these producers in the eyes. And you, you got to pay them. And you got to find the money to do that. Um, I look customers in the eyes, right, when I come here. And I, I took it seriously. And I, uh, I tried my best. And you know, I was lucky, too. I uh, you know, think a lot of people do what I do and, and aren't lucky or don't get the business point down and that's a problem when you look at your own career as a wine importer now now that it's like eight years old sure i mean do you see different parts of your progression there do you identify different evolution you know i said i worked at a small wine shop a guy that i worked with there was um was mark and so mark came on about four years ago and you know he's uh he's going to places like Tennessee and um you know Chicago and he's built up this distributor network and so that's been a really big deal you know i mean we're still a small medium importer but we're not you know selling most of our stuff in New York or or San Francisco or Los Angeles we're we're really trying to spread the love <laughs> to all these other places and give love to these other places um so that's been one big evolution and an important one both the philosophy that I have and Mark has for Portovino to, to, to bring good wines to lots of other people. And then also economically, right? I mean, you know, I, don't they say something like New York is where you uh, start and end the, the business or something like that? I, I think that might be true for a lot of people, right? A lot of people start it up and end it. And it's really sad. They put their whole heart and, and spirit into things and, you know, went to shit. Um, Having these other markets, these I think we're up to 22 states, has been a balance. And it's also been a financial um, backboard for us to um, do better things, find cooler wines, spend more time understanding wines, find and understand regions. Another evolution for me personally is the relationship with producers. In the beginning, <laughs> this word romantic comes up, but you know, you sit at the table and everyone's smiling. They're bringing out the older wines and everything's good. Uh, and I think that's really important. It's kind of like when you meet, meet a guy or a girl, right? You, you should kind of enjoy each other. And, and there is a courtship there. You try to put some money together to go out to eat maybe somewhere. And then there's the period where you're like, you know, who the fuck's taking out the trash tonight, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's just normal. If you have real relationships and spend enough time with people, you go through that, you know? You, you say, you know, first everything's great. Then they're like, you know, they need money or they need to sell more wine or they want to sell wine you don't like or you want to <laughs> sell wine that they don't have, <laughs> right? And a lot of people stay, I, I mean, I what I see is a lot of people stay at that phase where it's like a death by a thousand cuts, right? And, and that's fine. I mean, we all have those relationships and they're mutually beneficial. But I, I think the best relationship is where you, you get beyond those two stages. Just like in marriage. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm the ideal here, right? Because I'm not, unfortunately. But I, you know, you got to like kissing your wife or, or your husband, right? And, um, and you got to know when it's your fucking day to take out the trash. 
In terms of developing other markets, that's interesting to me because I think for a lot of the kind of small scale or smaller scale producers you work with in Italy, my instinct would be like, well, you could probably just sell all of that in New York and San Francisco. Like they don't make a lot of wine. But you're actively saying like, look, no, we're going to try to develop the space of all these other states. Yes and no, right? I mean, when we talk about producer size, I think that we just say small or big, you know? There's lots of medium-sized producers that I think are really interesting. And, you know, sometimes the middle road's the harder one to pave because it, you don't understand it quickly. You can understand small producer. You can understand big producer. You don't know what middle producer means. I think producers that have 10 hectares, 15 hectares, even 20. I mean, you know, Walter Mouse has 20 hectares. It allows him to have a lot of different tanks. You know, I can taste through those tanks. We can choose the best wines to put in their donut, right? I think that's really cool. So I think some of our producers are, are medium-sized producers. They have 10 hectares. They have 15 hectares. And so there is a real need to distribute those wines nationally. And I, I love that need. I, I, you know, it's easy or easier, I think, to be the cool kid that sells 20 cases of this weird-ass wine variety, right, in New York City. That's not elevating the wine consciousness of, of the sommelier community and the buyer community for Italian wine. With the smaller producers, it's trickier. It's a, it's a little bit like a puzzle, you know? I think you have to connect people to people. So you just don't take, you know, I have producers that we have a pallet of or two pallets of. And I just don't think you put it in one market. I just don't think you, and I don't think you put it in, you know, 20 some markets. But I do think you make connections maybe in three or four. And so you have this really cool Sangiovese. Um, you know, from Colipisani, and he's only got, you know, two pallets a year. But this innovation is delicious when lots of other stuff is kind of like, meh. And, you know, the guys in North Carolina, they're digging it, right? And they take their, their pallet, and then, you know, guys in Miami, Florida, to your surprise, <laughs> are digging it too. And um, you give them their pallet, and I think that's a real service. And you tell the producer, you know, they kind of, you know, times aren't very good with geography. They still think Miami's really close to New York. I mean, have you seen this? No, no. <laughs> they're like, let's um, go to Miami after New York. I'm like, well, you know, we got to get a flight. Or they're like, how about, um, you know, upstate New York, right? And we can just take a cab there, you know, to Rochester. I'm like, well, I'm not sure, right? So I, I don't know if I answered your question, but that for me is, has been the arc of, especially in the last four years of Porto Vino, you know, we're, we're cranking now. It's great. It's really cool. And it gives you the opportunity, um, you know, it gives the opportunity when you're practical, when you get your shit together to, to to really in some ways be more sensitive again and a different kind of sensitivity, right? And that's, and I'm just coming into this and it's really exciting for me. You know, it's easy to lose your sensitivity, isn't it, right? I mean, it's easy to be hopelessly romantic sensitive and, and go out of business. It's easy to be like a numbers guy, crunch it and, you know, crush it. <laughs> um, that's not... That both of those aren't me and, and who I want to be. I want to I make things work and, you know, I want to try to be sensitive to find cool wines. So you have the latitude now to... It's starting, you know, it's starting. It's still tough, right? I mean, you know, it, it, takes, it takes a lot of work. It's just starting for me after a long, long time. But I, I recognize how important it is because I think for a while there, years ago, I... You know, you go into emergency mode and you're just kind of, you know, a producer wants to sell you some wine that you don't necessarily think is great or, or really fits in your portfolio, where they want you to sell, you know, three times as much in one year. Um, it's easy to be dismissive of them and say, like, well, you don't understand, or this is why, and understand it. Um, and I don't, I tend to have less conversations like that. I, I tend to say, like, I understand where you're coming from, right? Or tell me about, like, Things are going on there, your economic problems, or how can we figure it out? Or how can I help you here? Or let me explain this guy that's calling you from, um, you know, this other distributor's calling, you know, maybe that is a good option. Let's, let's play it through. So I'm, 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 I feel better. I, I sleep better at night like that. So obviously I get it that you live in Italy and also that you speak Italian, but is there a particular reason why you've only done Italian wines? You know, because a lot of portfolios... Once they start with a part of Europe, they expand. Sure, sure. It's a good question. <laughs> you know, as we've grown, uh, as Portovino's grown, 
I have often thought, is there another country to do, right? I mean, you know, Portugal's really cool. <laughs> Mark, um, who works with me, is uh, fluent in Spanish and, and knows Spanish wines really well. Um, Greece ain't a bad place to go on vacation with the family and do a little bit of wine work, you know what I'm saying? But I, I don't feel that I, I can do the same service for people. Do you know what I mean? I, I, can't, t- I can't tell them the same stories. It feels more like a sip and spit importer, you know? So I can go to, to Portugal, sip and spit, but I don't know the language. It took me years to know the language intimately. You know, it's one thing saying ciao and un café, right? It's another thing like saying to the barista, listen, why'd you serve me the, the, this café in a paper cup? <laughs> I need it in ceramic and uh, give me a shortfall. You know what I mean? And so that's... That's, you know, what I can offer to people, you know, I, you know, where it's a service industry, I'm, I'm serving people um, wine, I still think of it that way. And then I'm also telling them the stories and the authentic stories of a place. And I just can do that. I can do that better in Italy. I don't know where I can do that else elsewhere, you know, also time wise. I'm not going to go to France and go to a natural wine fair. I mean, I love the Loire Valley wines just as much as the next guy, but I don't live in the Loire Valley. I don't take trains, um, you know, there every week and meet with producers. I mean, and that's what I do in Italy. And that's, you know, you got to spend the time to do the work. And I I just don't see me doing it in all these places. And what's it like doing the work, you know, based in Italy and then selling in the States? Because it's not everybody, right? Like there's plenty of people who live in the States and import wine to the States. Now, I remember everyone in the beginning, <laughs> they were like, good idea, man. <laughs> Sell to the U.S. wine market, but, uh, but, but you know, being a medieval castle in Italy, that's going to work out. You know, kind of, you got to go to the cow to milk it kind of thing, you know. And, and, and they were right. I mean, in the beginning, it was really hard. Um, you know, you can, it's, it's hard to, you know, with the time difference to cold call uh, <laughs> top San Francisco restaurants. Be like, hey, man, I was just wondering. I got this Vermentino from uh, Sardinia, <laughs> native rootstock. <laughs> But as time's gone has gone on, uh, I think people people are looking for someone that really is discovering producers that maybe don't come to the fairs, or that that you need to follow before you bring them over, or they just want to know you know where to go out to eat. You know, I plan so many trips for people. It's not like I I'm not, I don't wine and dine them. You know, we go out to eat maybe a meal or two, then I drop them off at a train station, then I, I make sure they get to somewhere else. I mean, that's been a, a big part. I, I think everyone, everyone has their own, lot, lot, not everyone, but lots of people have their own story with Italy. And I respect that, and I want them to continue that story. If I can help them <laughs> go this way or other way, um, then I feel like I'm doing a real service to, to the community as a whole. And, and then just by default, it, it, I'm doing a service to Porto Vino, right? And so what did the portfolio look like originally? Because I feel like when I've gone to the tasting more recently, it's a lot more wine than it was originally the case. So I you imagine bet. there's yeah. been some growth. There's lots of growth. Um, lots of growth. In, in the beginning, I was lucky to, um, I think I started with two key producers, Walter Massa and, and Alice. I mean, those were the two that, you know, gave us stability to um, go out there in, in, in the market. Super rare grape, you know, you, you know, Timorasso. That was, that was a hard sell. <laughs> I thought everyone knew it. <laughs> you know, at the time, Walter was, was, even then, he was really famous. I mean, politicians would be coming by his house, all kinds of wine lovers. So I'm like, okay, so here I am. They're like, you know, Timahu. <laughs> um, and, there, and there were some people in the New York market that knew it. And maybe two in San Francisco, but except for that, no one. Uh, but I, you know, I, I believed in this winery, and 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 it worked. You know, I started bringing it around. It was one. It's actually it's still to this day. It was, it was one of the success stories of a of a white that is not a cheap Italian white that we don't sell twenty cases of, and I'm really proud of that. It, it, it's entered into to the, the the minds of sommeliers and stuff. So that was one. Um, the other one was a wine that I didn't want to import at all, right? Because I wanted the cool shit. Like, I wanted it to be weird. It was, you know, I wanted it to be uh, the, the anti-importer, you know? <laughs> um, a good business plan, you know? <laughs> good way to make money. <laughs> um, in fact, my investor would always say, he's like, uh, you were going to make money on that? Or how does that work, you know? 
Um, so you're saying you didn't want to have a Prosecco is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But um, <laughs> I, I do believe if, if you know what you're searching for, you're not searching. Um, and so you have to always be on the lookout for, you know, for things that, that, that get you excited. You know, part of selling wine, part of um, um, getting the wine out there is, is being excited about it. Uh, for sure. It's a, it's a very simple emotion, but it's a very important emotion. And so um, I wanted some Girard, right? So uh, I wanted some Girard from Chateau Chalon. I had to find the distributor of it in Italy. And it happened um, to you, be in you the You wanted to buy it to drink. Yeah, yourself. to drink. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, so I, um, I took the train up to Vittorio Veneto. It's this area right near the Dolomite part of... Um, of the Prosecco zone, which, which before that, of course, you know, I was, I, I was never there. And so I used to talk shit about it. I'd be like, it's industrial wasteland, you know? Um, and it wasn't, it was beautiful <laughs> rolling Hills and, and the Dolomites, dude. I mean, the Dolomites are right there, Alpine lakes. And she got me the wines and she said, would you like a glass of Prosecco? I said, okay, it's hot out, right? Be nice. So I, I took a glass of Prosecco and it was, um, it was, it was a brute Prosecco. And at that time, brute wasn't, wasn't the thing, you know, everyone wanted extra dry, um, especially abroad, but, but also in Italy. And, um, it was delicious. It was delicious. And I said, is this Prosecco? Cause I, you know, I just want to be clear here. I don't like Prosecco. <laughs> you felt yourself falling for it. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, you know, I don't want this. Um, and, um, you know, she played my game. She's like, she understood, right? She got it. That I was the guy that was drinking Cremant, right? From Loire, not, not Prosecco. I knew what I was doing, you know? Um, but that Prosecco just, just turned me. And it was the beginning of a relationship that really made a difference for Porto Vino. And also, also the portfolio, because it's just not, you know, when people say it's just, you know, it's easy to say our portfolio is just filled with geeky, geeky stuff, you know? But it's not. It's also, by default in some ways, a rediscovering of the classics. Like, I'm really proud that we discovered a Prosecco that, you know, my wine geek friends like and drink and I can serve at home. Um, that means a lot to me. Of course, how I got it was, <laughs> was, was a bit odd. So she said, I, I, <laughs> she told me to come back. So I went home um, and uh, I, I said, now I'm interested, right? So now you got me. Uh, I mean, this is really good. I said, can I come back up? And I'd like to taste through all the, all, all the Prosecco. And she was with an importer. They were doing okay, but they, they didn't understand what she had. And so um, she, she was at the end of that relationship. I think that importer went under and I went back up. And it was a pretty formal meeting. The two women are the owners of the winery, Cinzia and Pia Francesca. And, you know, they're serious ladies. You know, they're cellar rats, but, you know, they dress well. <laughs> they're, they're articulate and, um, you know, they know what they want. They, you know, it's not uh, just by chance that they make very stellar uh, sparkling wines. And so we're tasting and I'm enjoying all. And then I said, this is, oh, this is a big deal. This, is, this means a lot to me. These are great. These are great. Um, and I said, you know, God, there's this thing in here. It reminds me of my childhood. And, and I love that. I think we all love that, you know, taste it. Remind me of your, your childhood when you go back. And when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike uh, down the sidewalk to a honeysuckle bush. And uh, I remember I hated that bush because you had to like squeeze, you get like one drop of honeysuckle, right? Um, and uh, I would do that for hours. Of course, like, you know, thank God my dad never, like, you know, found me. Like, what the hell are you doing, dude? The neighbors are like, you're at the honeysuckle bush one drop at a time. Kick your ass. <laughs> Kick your ass. <laughs> That's when he stopped playing catch with him. He's exactly. like, I'm ashamed to even be seen exactly. with you. Exactly. No more catch with you. Um, but I, um, you know, they're, they're, you know and, and Prosecco, the Grela grape, has that honeysuckle. It's kind of a classic descriptor for um, Prosecco, even in the Brut. Um, and so um, I said, <laughs> I said, uh, you know, suckle is, is uh, you know, to suck is sukya, right? And I, I looked at these women in both in the eyes, and I said, um, uh, I said, yeah, honey suckle, you know, it's um, you know, sukya tete, which means like suck your breasts, right? And they're like, ah! <laughs> I'm sure your dad would have been proud of that. I think he would. I think he would have been good with that one. <laughs> 
Uh, I think it was good. All grown up now. <laughs> and, um, you know, they were stone-faced. And, of course, you know, the next day, I, uh, I, I didn't realize it, right? I, you know, I thought I, I didn't realize I was being Romulus, right? With a dual shield. They're like, okay, this guy's, uh, yeah. And so um, the next day, I, was, you know, write a, a formal email and say, let's, let's get it going. She's like, um, container order payment in advance. I mean, she's probably was trying to get rid of me, right? <laughs> um, and I said, yeah, okay. And I did it. And, I, I, you know, we could have lost everything then. But I believed in it. And, and um, you know, we were a smaller company. There was, I shouldn't have been ordering a container of Prosecco that wasn't tested in the market and everything. But I did it. And um, I used the money, and I paid her. And, um, and we sold it. And people enjoyed it. And we ordered more. And it worked out. And to this day, Cinzia loves that story. Loves that, that I said that to them. And, uh, <laughs> and it's something that brings us closer together. You know, relationships are hard. And so when you have those moments that are, that are real, that are intimate, you know, when you're, when you're fighting or something's not working out or, or there's a problem, you know, quirks go bad, dude. But, you know, sometimes there are two, three hundred cases that are are gone bad. And you don't just say, that's your problem, right? You say, well, well, how can we fix this? Those kind of stresses and those kind of conversations really come much easier to me because of um, this openness that I've had with with producers and and these stories that we've had had together. I feel like Walter Musso is a guy that's known to be a big personality. Crazy. And that's one of your other early finds so i mean there had to be some similar level of yeah I <laughs> early mean, miscommunication or yeah no he was i mean i was definitely intimidated right um but i went to his house and uh i said uh <clears throat> you know can i come in and he said what do you want to drink and uh, to this day walter still says that i mean i've been to walter's house hundreds of times and he's like what do you want to drink and, i mean he's very he can be very direct sometimes. And I said, um, Timurasso. <laughs> so I was off to a good start. And we started tasting through some bottles. And then he said, okay, let's go downstairs. And so, you know, he, he still lives with his mom in the same house. And then downstairs is the cellar. And so we went downstairs and, you know, there were all these cement tanks of, of Timurasso. And, and we started tasting from the cement tanks. And it was really, it was really the first time. I didn't have a lot of experience tasting from tanks so much, right? Unfinished wines. And then we started tasting from big barrels, the, the Monleale, his Barbera. And then, you know, he's like, all right, let's go for, you know, let's go for um, a, a ride over to the vineyards. So we went over to the vineyards and the vineyards were like two minutes away. Um, and we're looking at the vineyards um, and not talking about soil. I mean, you know, he wasn't, he, it wasn't, he wasn't polished. You know, he's, he's a, I'd like to say he's a he's a normal guy. He's not, <laughs> but um, I think he still has those aspirations to be a normal guy, um, even though he makes this great wine. And so, um, you know, then we go out to dinner and, and hang out, and um, I just spent I just spent hours with him, right? And th- he shouldn't have given me that. I didn't deserve that. There were much better importers than to take that, and they could have done a, probably a better job too. I mean, that, that's the truth, but. I said, well, can we, can we start? <laughs> and he said, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, why don't you think about it? He goes, okay, I thought about it. Let's start. Let's see how it goes. I was like, yeah. And I was super psyched. I was super scared, though, too. I wouldn't do a good job for him. I, I worked really hard, and I think we all did, uh, uh, worked really hard to, to make it happen. And, and you know, the, the wines come through, you know. Um, so that was Walter. I mean, you know, and then, of course, Walter's this crazy personality and he can, you know, he can start yelling and stuff and um, he can also be a gentle soul. So that relationship has been, uh, you know, he's, it, it was, it was hard in the beginnings because he didn't, he didn't know what he wanted, right? And he had a lot of things going on. Again, there's always the story behind the story. People nowadays, they love going to Walter Moss when I take him there because he's the crazy professor and all that. You know, it, you know, it plays well. And he is that. I mean, that is a, a part of him. But there's the story behind the story too. Walter really is married to those hills. I mean it. Like, that's his wife, those hills. And Timurasso is his sweetheart. Um, and that's the way he feels deep inside. 
And, you know, when you talk to him more and more, <laughs> a guy that rescued a grape like that, he's not a big blowhard, right? He's not a mad professor. He's not stupid. He's not crazy. He's just really passionate and, and um, set on doing something. And so uh, I think that was cool. I think that was a, that's a good time. Walter always says, uh, quotes, Vasco uh, Rossi, he says, um, Tutto un equilibrio sopra la follia. Everything's um, is, is a balance above the craziness. And that's Walter. That is Walter. He's, um, he's crazy, crazy, but he has this impeccable balance above that craziness. And he has a good dose of what they say in Italian, buon senso, like common sense. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, I remember when we went to the co-op and um, they wanted to, to talk to him. This was years later and in, in the local area and um, they wanted to use native yeast and they wanted to close the top of um, the Barbera tank. They wanted to, uh, clo- you know, not open, open top fermentation. And then and Walter's like, I don't know why you guys are doing that. You know, I do open top fermentation. It works all the time. We have grapes right next to each other. Um, that's crazy. Uh, but they were used to doing it their own way and they didn't, they, they lost that like simple thing of like bon sense of common sense, you know? So I, um, that's Walter. Yeah. I think a lot of times when I think of the Portavino book, although it's maybe less true now, but I often think of it as like they found the classic producer that had been doing it the same way for 50 or a hundred years, but like had fallen off the radar and people didn't really know about, and they tracked this dude down, you sure. know, sometimes like living in a cave and <laughs> yeah, know, or, no, you know. no, for sure. I mean, I think, um, I think I'm fascinated by finding these, these producers and I, I feel it, uh, you know, in, in a, I don't laugh at this, but I feel it as a moral obligation sometimes, you know, these things are fragile. They go away. Producers go away. And you don't see him again. I mean, that, that was the case with Scarpa. Scarpa, you know, I mean, you, you know Scarpa, you know, tons of wines, tons of library reserve, Barolo, Barbera, Fraser. I mean, I drank the 2001 Dolcetto last night. But it was, it, was, it was dusty in a bad way. It wasn't dusty red in a good way. For, for many years, it was, a, it was a, in Italian, say, a recupero. Um, a, like a restoration project. You know what I mean? There was a lot of work. It was um, I don't know, kind of like my dad. He'd be like, he'd be looking at a you know an old Impala, '65 Impala. I hope they made them then. Um, but he, he'd be he could see the, a '65 Impala, like all rusty with no paint. He'd be like, that's the shit. Like he'd see the the you know the gold speckled blue paint, and he'd see the Holly four barrel carburetor on it right through the hood. You know what I'm saying? I was like. Dude, dad doesn't even have tires, right? <laughs> it's on cinder blocks. <laughs> um, and I, and I, you know, I say I bring some of that, I think, to uh, to these places. You know, uh, with Scarpa, that was certainly the case, and they did lots of work themselves. So they were they were already working, I think, for a good ten years to, to bring it back up. You know, it was kind of it was it was petering out. They had lots of great library reserve wines, but they were making less and less wines every year. Um, and I'm super proud of that. Now, you know, it's, it's doing super well and it has um, a new life. It's a rejuvenated tradition and that's really cool. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, yeah, finding those, <laughs> finding those producers. Um, you know, I just think they're going to go away, right? So I want to find them, you know, I don't want, I want them, I want other people to be able to experience that. I guess that sensibility really melds pretty well with Christiana Gorella. You bring in Columbella and Gorella and I feel like that's his whole... The job he set for himself for his entire zone, like for the place that he's from. For Alto Piemonte. Yeah. Um, I never thought about it that way, but I, I think you're right. Uh, he is someone that, um, <laughs> you know, he, he, he's a little bit like a gnome, right? And he drives around real quick, um, <laughs> picking up different soils and showing them to you. And I think that uh, he... <laughs> He really did for Alto Piemonte. He has that that love of of the land and that area. I mean, it's it's, it's cool to say Alto Piemonte, and it's kind of you know now with buyers and and sommeliers, it's 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 the area now. But even going there nowadays, I got I always take like I got to like figure out the back road that doesn't you know it doesn't have the industrial wasteland by its side. You know what I mean? It's not beautiful. It's not Tuscany. It's not Friuli. Um, it's it's a it's an economically depressed area still. Um, you know, even Gattinata, it's hard to find a prosciutto sandwich that's like decent, you know, they got like white bread sandwiches there. 
Um, but Cristiano has, and he's bringing it back. And he, he like all great visionaries, he, he looks beyond the things that aren't working and the desperation and, and looks at the things that he can make work and does make work. I feel like the wines are pretty good. Colin Bell and Girl. I think they're coming along, you know? I mean, it's fun to follow a winery that, that each year they're getting better and better, you know? That's... Um, that that's that's a really great feeling. I mean, also because you feel like you made a good choice. Also because you feel like you're building something together. So that's really cool. <laughs> it's a, a three person team there. You know, there's um, Cristiano, who's you know the experienced enologist and really the the guru of Alto Piemonte for soils and wines, and, and an excellent excellent taster. And then there's his um, friend Giacomo Colombera, who's uh, just you know kind of young guy, just graduated from agronomy school. And he has the vineyards along with his dad, who's the real gruff guy, um, Carlo. He's uh, he was a he was a tractor. Let me just to give you some idea. He was a tractor driver at Antoniolo, right? <laughs> um, and he had these vineyards. He made some good wines. They were they were rustic though, right? They 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 weren't they weren't followed so well in the cellar. Um, but the three of them together is such a cool thing to see for the generational shift, right? Because I'll call the house. I'll be like, um, Cristiano. He's like, no, it's Carlo. Ernest, what are you doing? You know, come die. I'm like, I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you doing? He's like, fucking kids, you know? All they want to do is like Facebook. Uh, I don't understand that Facebook even. And then there's lots of people coming here. I don't even know who they are. Why are they coming here, Ernest? I'm like, well, no, they like the wine. It's a good, it's a good thing, man. He's like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but they should work more in the vineyard, you know? They, you know, what are they doing? He's like this huge hulking guy. Um, so it's a good trio. It's, it's one of the things where there's no tension between the generational shift between Cristiano's kind of our age, right? And has lots of experience. And, and in the middle of his career, kind of, you know, really, really doing fourth gear kind of in his career. And, um, and you know, Giacomo is, is just starting out and learning. And Carlo is, you know, he, he's got the reverse gear and can like run you over, right? So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of cool. <laughs> You see that also at Pepe, like the generations together in a kind of almost seamless way, but they're very different, right? For sure. I mean, the thing that amazes me about Pepe is lots and lots of wines in their cellar in the South, right? I mean, you just don't see this. You don't see this in the North uh, really a lot, let alone in the South. <laughs> and they, they have this naturalness sitting around the dinner table. That really... That really amazes me. And it's really Italian. And it's a good thing that's Italian. You know, when we go out to places in the U.S., young people really don't mix with older people, right? I mean, it's just not, it just doesn't happen. And in Italy, it does more. And I think that that is a context that allows for better understanding of, of many things, human issues, but also practical ones. You know, what did you do when it was really hot out? Or why aren't we going to do what you did when it was really hot out because of this, right? It's that conversation at the dinner table between multiple generations. And Pepe does that well. They do it really well. And with a naturalness that few producers, few producers have. I mean, I, you know, the 50-year vertical tasting of Pepe was, was super cool. And I love to taste all those old wines. And, uh, you know, I was, I was so happy um, to do it. But I, one of the cool parts of the tasting, uh, the historic tasting of, of the Pepe wines, was how like family members were making like their own food and coming between, you know, all these Italian, American and Canadian world journalists and wine and like giving me like, you know, spaghetti alla guitarra. Like that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's a real panache to be able to have that naturalness as a family, but also being a leading winery, not only in the South, but all of Italy. Seeing them all lined up that way, the multiple generations at the table. Right, right. That was the visit that said, yeah, I think I got to have a kid. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the game changer for me. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It hit me pretty hard. I would at least be in there. Yeah. Good for you, man. I mean, that's uh, it's one of the things. It's easy to talk shit about Italy. You know, I live in Italy. And it's easy to get down on Italy. But it still has things to teach us. And, and one of them is family. And one of them is gather around the dinner table. You know, I was with um distributor a couple weeks ago and he's like, ah, oh, I don't have time to eat dinner. You know, I'm always like woofing it down and stuff. And I get that. And I really appreciate that too. I'm like, I really appreciate your work. But I said, you know, um, it's in my interest. You, you work as hard as you can and I get as much as I can out of you. Right. But that's not what I'm looking to do. I, I hope you can 
I'm not saying I have a two hour lunch, right? But I'm hoping you can take, you know, an hour and sit down with your family and you know, make, you know, have salad and, <laughs> and, and some beans or whatever, huh? nothing crazy, but take care of yourself, man. Do that. That's an important pattern. That's an important rhythm. That's a good habit. What's going to be next for you? What do you mean? I mean, here you are. You're just you're just cresting that part where things are starting to get good for you. I yeah. think that's the sense I get. It's all starting to come together. It's working. Yeah. Usually in Levy Dalton's life, and I feel like we have a lot of similarities. Yeah. That's the part where I start fucking things up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> no, that's the part where dude, we're very similar. Yeah. I mean, you know, the murder to create thing, right? <laughs> I, I I agree. I mean, I um, you know, I kind of prepared um yeah you know, I, I have people around me they, they don't want me to fuck things up and so i i trust them for me to trust myself and so i i'm hoping it's a little bit different because i am like that i you know you don't want to have too much success right you don't want to be a sellout you you want to be authentic whatever that means um, but being authentic to levy is um taking care of the people around you and sitting down at the table and uh, sharing a glass of wine and a plate of pasta Ernest Ilfkowitz believes in the power of having people around you. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, thank you, lovely man. Ernest Ilfkowitz of Portovino, an importer of Italian wines into America. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.